HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today, we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Sambar, and Mapesh. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. Straight No Chaser. This is radio from HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And my studio is absolutely full up today. We have three wonderful guests for the show. We'll be talking about cookbooks, about food trends. And this show will be all about policy, professionals, and the performance of the food industry in the 21st century. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with Libby Summers, Catherine Alford, and Kathy Gunst, and you'll be hearing more about what they've been doing in just a second. Jack. 
This is Straight No Chaser on Heritage Radio Network. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street, and brunch is being served. So in the studio, I have Kathy Gunst, who is not only a cookbook author and the author of a brand new book called Notes from a Main Kitchen. Um, she is also a host on WBUR's Here and Now as their resident restaurant, or um, what do you call yourself? Resident chef. Resident chef. Yeah, resident restaurant chef. I was going to say resident chef. We have Libby Summers, who is the author of The Whole Hog Cookbook. And um, she's going to tell us all about that. She even has a foreword by Paula Dean and a really beautiful photograph of herself all dressed up, um, making nice with her pigs. Don't hold a forward against me, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I wouldn't. And uh, we have Catherine Alford, who is the Test Kitchen Director of Food Network. Speaking of Paula Dean, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so um, let's start with you, Kathy, since, um, you know, I sort of know you better. I've looked at your book for longer. It's Notes from a Main Kitchen. And in the introduction, you say, I wanted to celebrate how evolved the culinary scene has become. And you're telling me that Maine is more than blueberries and lobster. Let me hear what's happening. Yeah, way more, way more. Well, Portland, Maine... I mean, I won't say that it rivals Portland, Oregon, but it's pretty close. Um, it's become a very sophisticated, pretty complex food city. Um, the state is filled with incredible chefs right now, but maybe even more importantly, really interesting farmers. Every other person seems to be making cheese or bread or beer or some artisan product that they are so deeply proud of. Um, so, you know, it's a major trend. We can talk about this later. But Maine is, um, it, it's, it's a big deal there. And, I mean, we have two or three James Beard award-winning chefs there. Um, I spent some time. Notes from a Maine Kitchen is really about a journey. It's about a year in life. It starts in January right. and it ends in December. And it chronicles the food scene there. And part of my goal was to really talk about what the whole year is like in Maine. Most people know about it in July. They come and That's visit right. their kids in camp or they come and eat lobster until they're so sick of it they until can't look pink. at anything red. <laughs> So it, it's a much larger story from January fishing for smelts on the Cathance River. Oh, I loved that, actually. That's yeah, a, that's a fun story. I should story. say that every um, sort of section is prefaced by a really nice essay about, you know, that particular month, like how you were feeling or what you were doing. And, and the smelt fishing one was really caught my eye because you went ice fishing. Went ice fishing my first time. Sam Hayward, um, chef of Forest Street in Portland, one of those James Beard award-winning chefs, took me and two of his buddies two miles up the frozen Cathance River on a bitter cold January day, and I was wearing 14 layers of clothing. Wow. I was ready for Arctic conditions. <laughs> and we get into a hut, and there's a wood-burning stove, and the guy had preheated it for us. Oh my so God. I stripped down to a T-shirt, and we started fishing for smelts. And within about an hour... We had over 100 fish, and they're these spectacular rainbow color fish, about six to eight inches, and they smell like cucumber, and they taste like cucumber. Why? It's the fre There's something about these freshwater fish. They're, let's see if I can say this right, androminous. Um, they, they, oh my goodness, I'm going to blow spawn it. They spawn in? They spawn in freshwater, and they live in salt, in salt water. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so they have this really interesting flavor. But in January, to be harvesting fresh food, we brought it back to Sam's kitchen. We coated them in Maine cornmeal and Maine sea salt and freshly ground pepper, heated up a cast iron skillet, cook them over really high heat for about three minutes. You cannot eat 
better food in January, almost anywhere, I would say. So that's an example of one of the chapters. And then I take you through the calendar year with foraging and gardening. And I even write a little bit about parenting. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And it's a lovely book. I really I've Thank enjoyed you. it. And then Libby, tell us a little bit about the Whole Hog Cookbook because Whole Hog Nose to Tail Cooking, that is tout la rage right now. It's Snout definitely to very shitter, hot. as my grandmother used to say. Yeah. Snout to shitter. Lula <laughs> <laughs> May was a I like she her was already. quite a character. I have to say first about Maine. Yes. Here's how much I love Maine cooking. My husband and I left Savannah, Georgia, December 31st one year, flew up to Maine to have um, a New Year's Eve dinner at Primo with Mm -hmm. Melissa Kelly. That's how much I love Maine, to leave fabulous weather, to go freeze my butt off. And it was worth it, right? Oh, my God. Primo's one of my favorite restaurants in the United States. Love Maine. So um, tell us about Whole Hog. How'd you, what, what made you want to write a book that's like all about the whole pig? Oh, it's just, well, it goes back. And are you a butcher? No, I'm not a butcher. Okay. Um, I wish that I knew a lot more about butchery than that I That can do, be arranged, you know. Yeah, I would love to. Um, <laughs> my grandparents were hog farmers in Missouri. And uh-huh. it was just this, as everything starts out with these wonderful memories. And, you know, that's what brings us the love. And anyway, I wanted to write a, a book just kind of celebrating the pig and every last bit of it. But something that was really approachable. This is a fun, total fun pork for chicks, beautiful book with a lot of how-tos in it, but it's not intimidating in any way. Not um, with with titles like Lula May's, uh, well, I just missed the page, Lula May's Double Cola Braised Pork Shoulder. Oh, Grandma Lula May, she'd be smoking a cigarette and stirring that <laughs> stirring that sauce in there, cussing, hair changing color daily. No, it's a gorgeous love book. Her. <laughs> also, you have wonderful photos, very retro styling to them. They're hilarious. Some of them, I mean, some those of them are really are cool. Some yeah, of them, yeah, I like that a lot. Some of them are retro. And so, did you write this? I mean, it takes a long time to write a cookbook. So, did you start working on this like years ago, and then the trend caught up with you, or did you spot a trend and think, <laughs> "Oh, let me go with that"? Well, I wish I could. I wish I could say I had a long time to work on it. I think this book was done um, the fastest book cookbook known to man. That's impressive. Um, I thank you. It was we. It was finished in about eleven weeks, um, what? which was very. Can you uh, believe that? I know. <laughs> it's not <laughs> financially. We had a big buy-in on the book, and it had to come out in two thousand and eleven. Jimmy. So I took eleven weeks, and luckily, what I do for a living is food styling and culinary producing, and you know so. And a lot so of the recipes were already happen. done. You know, when you pitch a book, you're put you're giving them so many recipes to begin with. Right. So um, we just put it in hot, you know, high gear. I didn't shower for like ten days straight. My <laughs> husband tells me I didn't have sex in those ten days either. I just want you to know. I am so glad to know that. <laughs> if you don't, like, I, I feel better. I really do. It was bad. Well, let's take a short break and come right back with uh, Libby Summers, Kathy Gunston, Catherine Alford on Straight with No Chaser.
This is Straight No Chaser on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm in the studio with Libby Summers, Kathy Gunst, and Catherine Alford. All three are uh, cookbook authors, among many other hats that they wear in the culinary world. Um, So the first question I have for all three of you is, how hard is it to write a cookbook? Because, you know, everybody who's made a recipe thinks, I should write a cookbook. And then they get mired into writing a cookbook, or maybe they don't. But just how hard is it? What does it take? What Uh, do you have to have? besides a concept. You have to have a tolerance for eating the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And everyone in your family has to have that too. So everyone does think it's very romantic and easy, but the minute you like, you know, you're you're basically writing sets of instructions over and over. It's kind of like programming a VCR and writing something competent so people can do that. And that's not really very sexy. Wow, but you just made it a bummer. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Well, that's what I'm coming from the point of view of like to make it a good cookbook. There's a lot of technical things that are going in that very, very important behind the story. But the thing that it takes to actually do a really great cookbook is you have to be and as both of these authors are incredibly passionate about your subject and have a fresh point of view about it. Because, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cookbooks out there that are just, you know, the same old thing sort of reworked. And when they're passionate either about place or about an ingredient, then that becomes a unique story. And, and, and that's what makes cookbooks really pleasurable. So what makes the cookbook successful in the end is really the voice of the author in a way, isn't it? I think it's, it's the voice not- of the I think it's the voice of the author and the the voice and I think the voice and playfulness of the food too because the food really represents that sort of voice and and making it accessible and seducing someone into the kitchen I think it's also luck and time and place and trends I mean you know every single time you open a website or walk into a bookstore thank god they still are bookstores um, there's just so many cookbooks it's mind blowing but apparently it's one of the few areas of book sales that is steady right now Um, but I was going to answer passion I was absolutely going to say I generally spend one to two and a half to three years working on a book so you can't get (laughs) bored you have to stick with it as opposed to 11 weeks which blows me away and of course I'm going to say you know with a team of people which we do at Food Network we'll do a book in four weeks wow yeah. So it's a it's a very different structure. It's a very, very yeah, different structure. Yeah, of course, structure. absolutely. And you did it you did it in 11 weeks. Did you I have assistance? I did 11 weeks. Oh, yes, 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 yes. We could have never So you had a whole it. test I, kitchen and there were people working exactly. on testing the recipes the whole time. And yeah. we were to the last second as we were shooting, you know, doing a third test on recipes. Mm-hmm. So I completely agree with with having to love the same ingredient over and over and over. <laughs> it took me a while to eat pork, I got to tell you, and After I love you, it. Yeah, I love you it. Got right? a lot. How many recipes are in your book? 120-ish. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, yeah. yeah. But I will say, I will speak to the voice of it, too. Like, one reason that I think that I know that how come my book, is, how much I love it so much is because Rizzoli actually let me be, and I'll put this in quotation marks, air quotes for everyone out there, slightly irreverent, mm-hmm. which is kind of me. I'm more <laughs> than... your I'm press more, release? Yes. David's, okay, you can be <laughs> slightly that. irreverent, Libby. <laughs> Tell so, us yeah. more about your sex life. <laughs> <laughs> it might be yeah. mentioned in there. I'm not Forget quite sure. about um, <laughs> Right. But I think what Libby says is really important. I certainly... Um, Downey's Books did my book. They're a main publisher, but they let me have my voice. One of the best compliments I'll get is from someone who reads it, who knows me and says, I just heard you on every page. And I thought, bingo, you know, that's what I want to hear. And then I want to hear you made me so hungry. Those are your two goals of a cookbook. And that's what the author is. I mean, someone who buys a cookbook really wants someone to take them into their world, almost like 
you know, it's your grandmother, your friend, or whoever is teaching you how to cook. You really do right. have to. I always think that I want to. I want them to feel like we are standing right behind them in the kitchen and making it easy and fun and playful. Like we've done all the work, so they can just have fun when they're cooking. Isn't that the name of one I of the agree. cookbooks you've worked on? Making it easy. Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> oh, nice tie-in. Sweet. Sweet. I did the publicity for it. Yes. So. <laughs> Yeah, back in the day when I was still flacking, thank God. I don't <laughs> and you were awesome, my darling. Thank you very much, Catherine. I appreciate that. Um, actually, those were books that I that really speak to. I mean, if you want to talk about making sure that you have the directions down, I did a lot of publicity for a lot of cookbooks, and the Food Network Kitchen's cookbooks were bar none the best ones in terms of like Solid. absolutely making that technique completely accessible and completely understandable and fun to play with. And um, <clears throat> you know, we did a lot of different um, authors, and believe me, other publishers are not as, or other cookbook authors are not necessarily. I mean, I want to just glance for a second into the world of testing your recipes well this is a it doesn't always thing. happen right. yeah it, it is and it's thing. very expensive i mean i really yes. do feel for you know people say oh don't you want to write cookbooks you know like these two lovely ladies on your own and i'm like i love the fact that i have a team of incredibly talented people who a someone shops for me someone yes. does the dishes for it and it's like it is a collaborative thing and okay, it's now so you're making Im- me jealous okay yeah <laughs> but it's great to have as many people sort of you know, testing recipes, giving feedback, having the experience. And it is, a, it's, it's a very labor intensive um, operation to do it right. And I and do it by yourself, yeah. which you did, Kathy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I really have, appreciate what single authors have. I have yeah. testers who are primarily passionate cook friends. And I say, take this home. Don't ask me any questions right now. Read it as if it's a book. The third element of a really good cookbook, passion, voice. But if those recipes don't work, it doesn't matter how pretty the pictures are. It doesn't matter how gorgeous the cover is. It's a useless work. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. And that's the end of your cookbook sales, although some people manage to Well, it takes them that. a while so, to figure it out, but word spreads. Yeah. It's like, hey, I tried 10 recipes from that book and nothing came out. It's like useless. Yeah. And especially if that's what, in my case, I'm all, I develop recipes for a living for other people. Right. So you know that people are really going to be looking at yours and making sure that they work. But I want to speak to what Catherine said about the financial side of it, too. Mm-hmm. I was talking, I had lunch with uh, my publisher while I was here in New York. And we were laughing about he has a book coming out of a lady who's doing a salad book. And I was like, a salad book? I have thousands of dollars in pork tied up in the testing of my book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's going out in the backyard and, you know, with her scissors and, and cutting leaves. dandelion greens. <laughs> hey, I, like, I, I wrote crazy. a cookbook on caviar foie gras and truffles. Okay, you got <laughs> top me topped. Okay, top I'm top like, top you know. You got me topped. It was an awesome year, but it, it actually, you know, I was like, I'm not making any money on this, not but I'm good. having a great time. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can imagine. That's some, that's some fine eating there, girls. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't get any better. So what do you see are the biggest trends right now in food and cooking? Like, where's you know the cookbook industry goes through certain sort of evolutions do you see i mean like a whole hog cookbook for instance to pork's me definitely seems trending pork my, is really trending God. what else yeah. do you think is is trending the seasonal thing is trending for sure i mean sure. those buzzwords seem so old at this point but they're very much alive the local the seasonal the regional they they we've been talking these words over and over for probably close to a decade now but i feel like it's not just a trend that it's become part of people's everyday eating and it's become real as opposed to trends that are just, you know, it's not the leopard miniskirt. It, it's a form <laughs> of the black dress, right? <laughs> I mean, there's trends and then there's real life. Yeah. 
because I'm seeing this like now in magazines and stuff, whereas before it was sort of like the the cool people knew about it, but now it's these words are going into um, mainstream magazines. It's fast food. It's yeah. I mean, that's the biggest problem. Is I feel like it 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 is a trend and it it is becoming accepted and sort of an aesthetic, but it's also being co-opted, which is very, you know, when a chain restaurant is doing an artisanal pizza, what does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything anymore. It's but, true. But, yeah. you know, I think the, the the biggest trend also is just really economy, which whole hog mm-hmm. and cooking seasonally really address, and also health. I mean, people are yeah. struggling with health one way or the other, trying to figure out either how to be healthier and also, also how to say, screw it, I don't care, I'm going to eat as ridiculously as I possibly can and in reaction to you know any kind of health dictum so I feel like there's this conflict of both I want to be healthy I want to eat better and I also want to go to NASCAR and have a ridiculous funnel cake no a f- there's a f- at NASCAR they're now serving a funnel cake with bacon and chocolate on top of oh, it. Right. Oh, right. I think what Catherine it, says is huge. There is this schism. That. Between, I love that. Yeah. You know, no, I'm, I'm not there. Yeah. Oh, Although I'm totally I did there. a cooking just... I did a cooking class last night and we made this gorgeous chocolate tart with an amaretti cookie crust and mean sea salt on top and someone said, "This needs bacon." And I'm like, oh man, we have cu- we have really lost it. <laughs> yeah, we actually just that. Jack and I just did a food drop about bacon. One of our one of the guys that we work with down in um, Virginia, Sam Edwards, uh, he he gave us a whole <coughs> clip on. There's a guy in a who makes donuts in his hometown that does a chocolate and peanut uh, and bacon uh, dusted donut and then there was somebody else who was doing a cake with bacon and then there's of course bacon ice cream which i've had and which is absolutely the delicious. apple pie oh that was right apple pie the crust that voice was God. <laughs> the strips of crust were interspersed with um strips of bacon mm-hmm. so you'd have like it was a weave mm-hmm. so one side would be you know the warp would be bacon and the weft would be pastry and, awesome and i, I would say it's in that it also that sort of bacon everywhere or chocolate or it's that irreverency and also entertainment and fun and playfulness that yes. people want to have. I feel like one thing that is great is, you know, that the set sort of seriousness of about food is kind of being poked at a little bit. It, we're ha- we can have more fun with it than what just I think being the bacon thing wet is worshiping about. at the yeah, altar yeah. of like yeah. serious food. I think there's this craving for flavor. Right, they're all. It's like we have the the devil and the angel on our shoulder. It's like be healthy, be healthy, be healthy. I want something real. I want something that has full flavor. And and when I cook, I try to like use the best ingredients possible so that you get a flavor blast and you don't have to overeat and you don't have to feel disgusting. Does that mean I don't use butter? No, it means I'm interested in flavor because like it's about balance. I think, and that's what I think the bacon thing is about. Bacon is about pure flavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Salt, Absolutely. meat, crunch. What and could fat. be more satisfying? And fat, exactly. You know, <laughs> that's a lot better than cottage cheese. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but I love cottage cheese. Yeah, but they're put together. <laughs> Little crumbled bacon you on your cottage cheese. Right <laughs> cottage cheese makes cottage me cheese. think of my mother and her dieting friends. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a very short break and come right back with uh, segment three of Straight No Chaser. And we'll talk a little more about radio and TV. We're back. 
back on Straight No Chaser. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. In the studio with me is Libby Summers, the author of The Whole Hog Cookbook, Kathy Gunst, who has also a new book, Notes from a Main Kitchen, and Catherine Alford, uh, Test Kitchen Director at Food Network. Um, so let's jump over and talk a little bit about media, since media has been so important in sort of driving general population interest in food, where food comes from, what we eat, and all that kind of stuff. Um, radio and television, what what do you think are the differences in how people respond <coughs> to content? For instance, Kathy, you do a segment on Here and Now on WBUR called The Resident Chef, and you often, as you discuss I think you did. You did a panel with me. That's how I did. That's exactly Um, right. About uh, food talk radio, and you use you actually cook on air to kind of create to build in uh, some of the more sensory qualities that go along with food because you don't have the visuals. Whereas at Food Network and what you do, Libby, also with Paula Dean and with other authors that you work with is is very visually oriented. So how do you think those play out differently in terms of the way people absorb information about food? Do you think that, I mean, does it, is it well, words so, that work or, or pictures that work? Well, both. both. I think people crave the pictures and they've become really dependent on them. The thing about talking about food on the radio is it's very much, as we're doing right now, it's about storytelling as opposed to saying, oh my God, look at that picture of that pork dish, you know, or, or look at those gorgeous kitchens at the Food Network and that beautiful cake. Uh, it's my job to kind of build the visual so that you're home, you're doing what you're doing, you're driving in traffic, you're at your job, but you're hearing a picture of a dish. And hopefully, you can picture it and almost taste it. So the words become very important, as you said, because obviously, you don't have the visual. And it's a challenge, but it's a great challenge. And what do you? What kind of topics do you typically cover on your segments? Do you do recipes, or do you talk about food trends and sort of a cu- any both? and everything? Yeah. I used to cook live before all the wars and the world just exploded. I used to actually cook live on air, so we never boiled pasta because there's not very interesting sound. Right. But it's kind of interesting. Chopping a raw parsnip has a very distinct sound as opposed to, let's say, shaving fresh ginger has another more subtle sound. So you become very attuned to. This sense in food, which is very overlooked. Um, I once interviewed Jacques Papin, and he said he could walk into his kitchens and tell if his chefs had overcooked the steak based on the sound of the sizzle he heard. This is not how chefs are trained. It's really fascinating. So I'm really interested in sound and food. Yeah, absolutely. And for you two who both work in the visual world, how how do you think people do they respond to the word part, you know the verbal part of the broadcasts as much as they do to the photographs or the or the um you know the footage i think the medium totally changes how people interact with it we're talking about radio television i spend a tremendous amount of time working on food network magazine which is yes. very visible very very visual and there there very is very little text about the food the 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 image really relates it but there's a very different relationship for the user depending on the medium so like for example the magazine is very very uh, recipe intense and so people really use it to take it into the kitchen or to vicariously have that food experience on television it's it's very much like radio they want story conflict it's you know beginning middle and end where's the tension that's why a lot of the competition shows really resonate on our network and in others but then also then the internet gives a whole nother. There are things you can talk about in a website that you can't talk about on television very successfully on radio. For example, not to harp on health, but that has a life 
online that it doesn't have in mm-hmm. other medium because it's not very sexy to watch a television show about health, but people, we see it over and over from the searches that people are looking for and page views, healthy content has a real vibrant life online and in blogs and sort of in the mommy blog world and people struggling to how to feed their family. And so the medium allows you, and I think all these different choices is kind of interesting because then all the different voices do have a place to live. And it's not just one one medium that we're interacting with food. Right, and people are taking it in on every level. Unfortunately, we only have a couple minutes left. I have one more question that we're going to be allowed to, to do here before we wrap it up. Um, and this is something that I, that I have had many conversations with. I'm going to jump right into this. Should, food be, should cooking be taught in schools again the way it was when we were kids? Or do you think that people will never cook the way they did when our parents were growing up? A hundred percent, yes. Yes. Uh, yes, but not the way we were taught. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I have to say, I, I think that the food in school movement is fantastic. I wish it was less chef-driven and just like about, this is a life skill that anyone should have. You don't have to wear a chef's jacket in order I'm to do it. I'm not a chef, and I'm teaching in South Berwick, Maine. We've built a hoop house. I taught 460 kids cooking classes last year. It's happening big time. And the kids respond well. How about down south where you are? Um, Do you see a big movement towards that? It's very popular here in the Northeast. I don't is, know how it's it playing. It is not in the, in the area that I am. Really? Uh, a little bit further south, there's some great things happening in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly not. <laughs> I just gagged. made a face. I, I loved that. I just made a she face. gagged. I love this uh, woman. <laughs> so uh, I wish there was more in Georgia. I completely agree with these wonderful women that it's about the growing as well as the teaching of what's happening. It's, it's how to grow these wonderful things and you know once they grow it they'll be more, I guess. I more mean, inclined I, to use it they don't say no after they've grown no there's yeah, right. a lot they of work that goes no. into it that's true um i you know my take of course i think i've been saying this for years that if you know when we stop teaching people how to cook in school or at least exposing them to the idea that taking a can of tomatoes and boiling up a pot of pasta is just as good as opening a jar of ragu maybe better um and better. A, certainly a lot cheaper right um you know that that sort of home ec aspect of it really just went right out the window and now that's why people are so like well it's so much cheaper to eat in fast food restaurants than it is to cook a meal at home that is actually not true yeah, i think that and i think that the economy issue is is something that really is driving people. We can't, you know, you talk about trends. Like, you, cooking is much cheaper. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. I've got first graders growing kale in a hoop house in Maine, and then we're making chips from them, and they're going home and saying, Mommy, I want kale. I don't want those potato chips anymore. I'm not making this up. Like, this really happens. So wow. That's I just love inspiring. every time Kathy says hoop house. Me too. <laughs> I'm like, can you say that like 10 more times? I'm I trying to figure out. That. As a woman urban gal, I'm like, what is that? Gonna, are they we're going to go out and have lunch now. Cheese? You can say it like 25 times. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> our time is up, ladies. Thank you very much. Libby Summers, your book is The Whole Hog Cookbook. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us at the last minute here. Oh I really gosh, appreciate what a your pleasure. good sport there. I love meeting you. Catherine, everyone. thanks a million for coming out and giving us the Food Network Spectrum. And Kathy Gunst, Notes from a Main Kitchen. These books are both on sale now wherever books are sold. Thank and you, please Katie. join us again next week when we talk about hydrofracking on straight no taste. Congratulations on the first show. Thanks, Yay, honey. congratulations. Yay. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. seasonal delights on the plaza outside Brooklyn's Borough Hall. Top chefs and artisans will offer sumptuous fare paired with premium wines, all to empower our neediest children to get healthy. The mighty FDNY and DSNY harbor their own culinary masters in uniform. They will cook off against the pros. Sample delicious cuisine without stressing over a reservation while supporting a worthy cause. Taste Brooklyn's Field to Fork Outdoor Culinary Festival, Saturday, October 15, 2011, from 11.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Learn more and buy tickets at tastesofbrooklyn.blogspot.com. That's T-A-S-T-E-S-O-F-Brooklyn.blogspot.com.